Hi, and welcome back to my random podcast. I'm here with Dr. Jean Reeves, a professor at Renmin University in Beijing. Hi, Jean. Hi. Welcome to Thailand. Thank you. Can you tell us what you're doing in Thailand? I'm here to uh, participate in Sakyadita, the uh, Buddhist Women's Association's conference. It was held every three or four years, and this year is being held here in Bangkok. And where do you live now? Nowadays, right now I'm living in Beijing, uh, teaching at Renmin University. Yes. My, I also have a home in Tokyo, where I will spend July, and a home in Chicago, where I spend August before coming back to Beijing. How long have you been teaching Buddhism? Um, I suppose I've been teaching Buddhism one way or another. Well, most seriously for about twenty years, um, but. In the context of courses in world religions, I taught a little bit about Buddhism for I don't know <laughs> a long time. Do you think the perception of the students of Buddhism in the West and the East is different? Yeah, the expectations. Well, I don't of know the about students. the West in general, but in the United States, of course, general perception of Buddhism is related to Zen or Chan traditions, which are of course minority traditions in in the East. China, in this respect, is very different from well, from both from. From Thailand and from、uh, Japan. Thailand, as you know, is a, basically a single tradition Buddhism called Theravada. China and Japan and all of East Asia are part of a, a development out of that that took place beginning in the, maybe in the first century, a little earlier, and、uh, called Mahayana. And but Chinese Buddhism is all Chinese Buddhism, not divided very much into schools or traditions, but just、uh, kind of amalgam of. of Different traditions, especially Pure Land and Chan. Whereas in Japan, there are various、um, sectarian organizations. Some of them going way back to the eighth century. More than most of them, the the ones that are lively and large are from the Middle Ages. And there are basically big ones are two. Well, the older ones, the two older big ones are Tendai and Shingon. Then there are. Two Zen tradition, two Zen schools, and Pure Land schools that are very. very and then, beginning in the 20th century, a number of lay Buddhist organizations have grown up in Japan, and I'm associated with one of those called Risho Kosekai. But it's、uh, the largest one by far, and better known one is Soka Gakkai. But there are a number of others.、Um, Risho Kosekai separated itself from Ryukai back in the 1930s. As did about 50 other organizations. So there are a lot of lay Buddhist organizations in Japan that are more or less in the Tendai Nichiren stream of Mahayana Buddhism. Actually, Soka Gakkai is pretty famous here, but I don't know anything about them. Can you tell us a little bit? Well, I don't know as much as I probably should, but、um, <laughs> and it, it, what makes it makes it more difficult is that it, it itself is a dynamic, changing tradition.、Uh, they were very famous at one time for being、uh, completely making the. They made the claim that they had the truth and nobody else did.、Mm-hmm. So they were very much against any kind of cooperation or collaboration with any other religious organization, Buddhist or non-Buddhist.、Mm-hmm. So it was almost cultic in a way, but that's changed dramatically in recent years. They separated themselves from a very conservative, small, monastic organization, and they've、uh, grown enormously internationally. How old are they? I think well, it goes. It depends on what you count, but it goes back. Originally, they were just the kind of lay branch of the, of the monastic organization back、right. beginning back in the 30s, I think. Wow. And、uh, but now they're completely separate and have created something SGI. Sokagakai International. Sokagakai International is what、yeah. it's called. Yeah. Okay. And、uh, they have tens of thousands of members in the United States, for example. So I think these things—the separation from the monastics and the influence of foreigners—has、uh, SGI at least、uh, much more liberal and more, and they participate now in interfaith organizations, things of that kind. What's、and、their、I、main purpose? I think in most of the world, they're not as a 
aggressive in recruiting as they were at one time. Recruiting people to do what? To be members of SGI. And, and what do you have to do as a member? I don't know very much about it. <laughs> um, the basic teaching has to do with reciting. They, they're big fans of reciting the name of the Lotus Sutra. I see. And uh, that's not, in Japanese we say Namu praise, Namu Myoho Renge Kyo, praise to the Lotus Sutra. Can you tell us briefly about the Lotus Sutra? Since yeah, you, you've I, written I, a lot about it. Yeah, I've written a lot about the Lotus Sutra and I'm a translator of the Lotus Sutra from Chinese to English. Yes. Not the only one, but popular one now. The Lotus Sutra, in my opinion, is uh, fantastically engaging because I think it addresses itself to, uh, to the reader and wants to encourage the reader to take on the life of a bodhisattva, of helping others, and uh, promises the reader that he or she is also capable of becoming a Buddha. Yes. So it's really, um, the Lotus Sutra is really a kind of a text that's trying to address itself to the needs of the reader, wherever they may be, whatever it be, and it tries to uh, be a kind of open gate. That The 25th chapter of the Lotus Sutra is called the Universal Gateway of the Bodhisattva Regatter of the Cries of the World, most mm -hmm. popularly known as Guan Yin or Kanon in Japanese. Or in Thai, Jama Guan Yin. And uh, that universal gateway is just one of the many uh, uses in the Lotus Sutra of the idea that everybody, doesn't matter whether you have, you've been bad or good, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, sick or well, male or female, whatever you are, you too are capable of becoming Buddha for somebody else. I think these terms Buddha and Bodhisattva are always, for the Lotus Sutra, I think they're always relational terms. They sometimes get used as though they were ranks, you know, you like get a merit badge and you become a Bodhisattva. In the Lotus Sutra, it's really more has to do with the kind of way of life, how you treat the people around you, whether the people you work with or play with or live with. So we really think that uh, the Lotus Sutra can be uh, effective and useful text for uh, all kinds of people. Part of that is because that the Lotus Sutra is not very philosophically or doctrinally, or it's mainly tries to get itself across through telling stories, parables, and other kinds of stories. Try to capture the, the reader's imagination, but also to get the reader or the hearer, it would have been originally, to get the hearer to open their mind and their imagination, thinking and experiencing and in new ways. So I think it's a very, well, obviously I love the Lotus Sutra. It's a very <laughs> exciting book and one that's as relevant today as it ever was. So we're very happy to join Sogagakai and Rayukai and there's a relatively new organization called Kokoro no Kai, which are also advocates and devotees in some sense of the Lotus Sutra. Can you give us a little more insight into the Lotus Sutra? Because it seems like there's maybe much more humility in uh, how it describes the way of life. Um, you said that it's not so dogmatic. You know, well, maybe in India, in early Buddhism, the emphasis tends to be in terms of what are the Buddhist virtues, how you should you live your life, the emphasis tends to be on a pursuit of wisdom. Mm -hmm. In China, beginning maybe in the late 9th or 10th century, under the influence in part of the Lotus Sutra, it's really hard to draw these causal influences, but Guanyin Bodhisattva became enormously popular, became not only a Bodhisattva, but a Bodhisattva and a Buddha. When she was living? No, no, no. This, is, the, a, this, the... this is a Bodhisattva who came from India as Avalokiteshvara, right. uh, in texts such as the Lotus in Sutra. In texts, right? Not in person. Popular no, no, in no. texts. That's right. In texts initially. Right. And of course, in the first 10 centuries or so of Buddhism in China, 
it's a very elitist religion. Mm -hmm. It's a religion of royalty and, uh, and upper-level monks. But uh, later on, it becomes partly under the sway of Guanyin Bodhisattva, it becomes popular religion, religion of ordinary people. Guanyin himself, this Indian Bodhisattva who's dressed like an Indian prince, has jewelry like an Indian prince, takes on the white robe of a woman. And uh, This is in reality or in text? Are we talking about... This is in popular religious belief in art, more especially, okay. in, more especially in art than okay. in text. Right. In fact, even today, any Buddhist scholar or monk yes. will tell you that Guanyin is not a Buddha. Right. But any ordinary believer will tell you that Guanyin is a fully realized Buddha who's staying in this world as a Bodhisattva in order to help struggling people. Okay. So even today, there's kind of a divide between textually oriented people and um, more ordinary uh, believers or devotees. So can you explain how, how this Indian prince became a female bodhisattva figure in Chinese well, art and I culture? I think it's partly under the influence of the Lotus Sutra. In the chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra, it said that Guanyin or Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit name, same or translation of names here. It says that Avalokiteshvara can take on any of 33 forms. Mm -hmm. The very first of those 33 forms that, and it, what it says is that he can take on any of these forms or bodies if that's what somebody needs in order to be helped. The very first of those is Buddha. Mm. Now, for 10 centuries or 11 centuries or so, nobody paid very much attention to what does that really imply in terms of ordinary life and practice and experience. But what it came to mean eventually in China was that people experienced the Buddha through or in Guanyin. Also among those 33 forms, there are several, I forget for sure, I think about seven of those forms, a female. So people came to think that Guanyin could be both uh, male and female. Right. And both Bodhisattva and Buddha. Yes. And uh, so the religion, Buddhist religion becomes, you know, there are lots of things going on, but it, partly through Guanyin devotion, partly through other means, the Buddhist religion in East Asia becomes more and more people's religion, ordinary people's religion. A little bit less textually oriented, a little bit, a little bit less oriented toward the pursuit of wisdom, and more importantly, especially devoted to the pursuit of compassion. Right. Because uh, this Bodhisattva has always been understood to be kind of the embodiment, some would say the symbol, but I think more really kind of the embodiment of compassion. Yes. Of, uh, sympathy and mercy and kindness toward others. Well, if you're an ordinary peasant or merchant or just an ordinary person in any sense of the right, some great encompassing wisdom, maybe kind of a highfalutin goal, but to be able to do acts of kindness to the people you work with, the people you live with, the people you play with, people who are in trouble, uh, that's maybe not so difficult to achieve. Right. We, I think that, um, that Guanyin kind of directs Buddhists, well, you know, in the West, at least, religions are portrayed as different paths to a mountaintop. Yes. And uh, in the language, we always think of high as really good and low as bad. But I think there's a sense in which Guanyin directs us not to the high places of the world, but to the low places, places where people are suffering, difficulty, and trouble. And, uh, I think if we go to those places, we've just had an enormous tragedy in northeastern Japan. Hundreds of thousands of people are suffering terribly as a result of the loss of thousands of lives, homes, and all that goes with that enormous tragedy. But also, if you go there, you find that there are people helping people in trouble. And uh, I think if we were on the eyes of the Lotus Sutra, we would see 
Guan Yin in those people. We see the embodiment of compassion in people, and that's Guan Yin being active in the world, in my opinion. In Japanese, we should say, we should say Kamnon, it's just a Japanese mm-hmm. pronunciation of the same name. Yeah. But uh, I think that Guan Yin has been directing East Asian peoples, Vietnamese, Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, has been directing us in a, to, to really take seriously embodying compassion and finding the Buddha in the suffering of the ordinary, really kind of directing us, suggesting to us that we shouldn't be climbing mountaintops, we should be <laughs> climbing down into the valleys and dark places and early and, and ugly places where people are some help. I have a random question. Sure. Right now in the theaters, you can see a Chinese movie called Sex and Zen. Uh-huh. What is the relationship between Zen and sex? I have the slightest idea. <laughs> this is a Chinese movie? Yes, it's actually... Because Zen is actually a Japanese word. Yeah. It's not Chinese. Exactly, and it's a Chinese movie. It's a remake of a, uh, a pornography, a famous pornography from the 70s or something. Uh-huh. So it's like a softcore version. And I was just wondering if there was a connection. No, well, it may be. Is there I, sex I, in if, Zen? If there is, I have absolutely no, I know nothing about it. What is the most important thing in Zen, Buddhism? Meditation. That's what it literally means, okay. Zen. And so it's a, it's a meditation tradition. The one, there are two major schools of Zen. Come, they come from China, but are um, two big Zen schools in Japan. One is uh, Soto, which is often caricatured, and in a way it's serious, uh, as just sitting. And the other one is Rinzai Zen, uh, Rinji in Japanese, in Chinese, I'm sorry, uh, where there's much more emphasis on koan. These are uh, kind of kind of mental puzzles mm. that try to help us overcome our ordinary ways of thinking. Trying to, in a way, try to, I think Buddhism in general, uh, at least in Mahayana tradition, really wants to try to get people to think differently. It's a common American expression nowadays is to think outside of the box. Yes. I think koans are really for that purpose, to try to break down our normal ways of thinking and get us to be more open, to experience the world as it is. Yes. So anyway, but I don't know what any of that's got to do with sex. <laughs> Probably some relationship, but I don't, I'd have to think about it. Yes. Well, I think you've given us um, that precise definition of thinking out of the box today. So thank you very much, Dr. Reese, for joining us. You're very welcome.